and welcome to the first episode of the Film Report. I am Gabby. And I am Michael. It is November 2020. November is Indigenous Peoples Month, so we thought we'd start with The Body Remembers When the World Broke Open. This film was released last year, 2019. It is co-directed by Elle Maya Tailfeathers. It sounds like she usually goes by Maya. And Kathleen Hepburn. It played at TIFF last year. Uh, Michael, do you want to provide a summary of the film? Sure, I can do that. The film stars the co-directors, Katherine Hepburn and Elmaya Tail Feathers. And they play two indigenous women living in Vancouver, Canada, who meet shortly after one of them has... Uh, experienced domestic abuse with her boyfriend. They meet on the street immediately after this has happened. Um, one of them, the uh, woman who was involved, is deeply shaken and upset, and it follows them in the immediate aftermath of this trauma as they get to know each other under some through some quiet conversations and discuss how exactly to move forward given the dangerous situation that appears one of these women is in anything Wait. like that no okay. i think that's good good start we've both separately done some research to try to find out some interesting facts about the film or behind the scenes information about the director how it was made yeah let's switch off in case there are in case there is any overlap between our fast facts, okay. um, would you like to go first? Give us a fast fact about the body remembers when the world broke open. Yes. Um, Maya, one of the co-directors, and as Michael mentioned, one of the lead actresses who plays Isla. This plotline and story was inspired by an experience that she had in Vancouver. Um, she hasn't gone into specifics necessarily on what that was, but she wanted to tell that story and ended up uh, reaching out to Kathleen Hepburn to co-write the story because Maya previously has done mostly documentaries and she wanted some help making it into more of a narrative feature. Very cool. Back to me? Yes. All right. My, fa my first fast fact is a quick one, which is that this is film was the winner, the winner of Canada's top Film Prize in 2019, sort of the Canadian equivalent of a, the Oscar for Best Picture here in the U.S. That's awesome. I'm glad to hear that, too. There you go. What else you got? All right. This is a little bit of a... It's a few fast facts in one, but... Um, this was shot in seven days. Mm -hmm. um, and... Other than the first two, the directors have called them prologues. There's kind of like a little introductory scene with uh, one character, Rosie, and then an introductory scene with the other character, Irla. And then once they meet, it's almost, uh, it appears to be one continuous take. So they shot those two prologues in two days, and then the remainder of the five days, they shot one take each of those days um they shot on 16 millimeter um and their cinematographer norm lee actually ended up 
developing some sort of a method called real-time transitioning um, to create this continuous shot look with 16 millimeter um, because film magazines typically last 11 minutes each. So they actually had to predetermine these stitch points where Norm would be handed a second camera that was pre-rolling and then he would have to either continue the motion or repeat the motion that he'd previously done and then continue the scene. And I knew that before the film and even knowing that I couldn't even find where they were stitching those together. So I thought they did that very seamlessly. I would agree. And you did essentially take one of my fast facts. I had a feeling we were both going to land on the real-time transitioning mm. technique as a fast fact because it is pretty cool and notable. So that was one of mine. I'll jump to my third then before we go back to you. And my third is rather specific. There are a handful of musical moments of note in the film. One of them uh, involves the Joni, Joni Mitchell song, Little Green, which uh, we hear when one of the characters puts on a record in one of the characters' apartments and listens to a song. And Joni Mitchell's song, Little Green, is about Joni Mitchell having to give her daughter up for adoption at the age of 19, which oh, is wow. nicely fitting with the themes of the movie. Interesting. How about that? That's very interesting. There you go. What you got? Fast fact wise for number three. <laughs> um I another fast fact is that um this film got picked up by Ava DuVernay's company Array, um, which was really exciting to see. I feel like I've seen in the last few months a lot of really great films from female directors um, or directors of color who um, might not necessarily get the chance to be picked up by a bigger production company. So it's been cool to see Ava DuVernay's company kind of setting the, the this new path of, yeah, a new territory. Totally. I would agree. And it is... It's currently streaming on Netflix for yeah. viewing, which yeah, is where, where we watched, watched it. it. Um, did you have other ones? Those were all my fast facts, so feel free to offer others that you have. Um, I just, I mean, okay, actually, yeah, I do have a lot more. Keep going. Um, well, okay, so I learned from there was a Q and A that um the directors did that I was really impressed with. They talked about some of the research, a lot of the research that they did beforehand and also some of the um, kind of activities that they carried on while they were shooting or beforehand. So um, beforehand, be when they were writing the script, they workshopped it with six indigenous youth and also women who were in foster care, um, which I just, really appreciated that they wanted to make sure that everything felt very accurate and real. Um, they also, while shooting, developed a youth mentorship program. So um, 11 indigenous youth were 
hired and paid to pair up with key crew members and actually be a part of the set, which I really liked. Mm. Um, and I feel like that should be done even more. I bet that was a very um, impactful experience and a good learning opportunity. They also brought on a, a law student on set before they started rolling um, to talk about indigenous women on screen and violence against women, just so that the whole crew could better understand the why of the film and also just how to be respectful of each other on set. Um, and Violet Nelson, this was her first role. Um, mm. or, yeah, so, or at least first feature. Um, I know, I think she had been in a music video before. Um, mm. They had her, set her up with a counselor to see once a week. And she, there was also an elder working on set who was from her specific community. So she is Kwa Kwa Kaywalk, um, and she's also a Honduran actress. Uh, and... I know that they also said that the film Victoria was good inspiration for them mm. for that one shot. They said they definitely, um, it, you know, they didn't, they weren't trying to go for as stylized of an approach they were aiming for. They wanted to do this continuous take because they felt like it helped you get more into the head of the actors. And mm. they also were inspired by Wendy and Lucy by Kelly Reichardt. Mm. Um, but I haven't seen that yet. I don't I haven't heard. Of oh, I love that, that movie. Yeah. I have seen that movie. <laughs> Can you see the inspiration points from that? Yeah, one hundred percent. Which I think Wendy and Lucy was also shot in sixteen millimeter, mm. if I remember correctly, and that's about a woman who's on her way by herself, except for her dog as company. She's on her way through Oregon and Washington on her way to Alaska when her car breaks down in this very small town in Oregon and is just uh, financially strapped trying to make her way uh, north and is similar just in its kind of realism. It's focused on a woman without much of a support system and um, similar in its kind of minimalism and understatement. Hmm, cool. I have to watch that one. Yeah. Um, okay, that's all my fast facts. However, I was thinking right after we finished up the movie that although they didn't list it as inspiration, I think it came out in 2019 too. Um, but a film that we just watched recently, you and I, um, hmm. this reminded me a little bit of sometimes never rarely always. I think you got the order of the words Damn. mixed up, but some I can forgive it. Sometimes. <laughs> what is it? I believe it is never, rarely, sometimes, always. Ah. Well, it's tricky. Close it's tricky. enough. People know what I'm going for. For sure. For um, sure. But yeah, I feel like it kind of had a similar pace um, and kind of like a similarly quiet protagonist. Um and features two women and very focused on like female um, issues and just trying to, I don't know, de demystify certain things that aren't typically shown on screen. Yeah, 100%. I, that movie definitely came to mind for me when we, when I was watching this one. Um, yeah, 100%. Okay, you, you talk. 
<laughs> okay. <laughs> I have other things I could say, but... Fast facts? Or no, not fast wise? facts. Just going into the movie. We're just talking about the movie itself. <laughs> um, well, like you mentioned earlier, I don't think I noticed any of the cuts that... Um, you know, are, are hidden by this real-time transitioning technique, except for maybe one where um, it is Isla and what's our other character's Rosie. name? Where Rosie has just done this drug deal and she's on her way down a dark stairwell. Uh, and they pan past the the. I think the there's kind of a dark shot there. I'm like, oh, I wonder if that's maybe one. But that's one out of what I think were 11 cuts. Were there um, 11? I think there were 11, just given the runtime of the movie. And yeah. And they're 11-minute reels or whatever. Yeah. So, yeah, it is really cool how just how seamless the process is and how not gimmicky it feels. It feels very, very natural in its pace and continuity. Um, I can think of films where the one-shot feature feels very attention-grabbing, and I did not feel like that was the case at all here. Yeah, and I do, I I read that the directors were very much like, we don't want it to be a spectacle or the reason that someone watches this film, um, which I feel like is typically like, it's, that's usually the like promotional factor of certain films like Birdman or like Victoria, mm -hmm. that it was just like, a lot of people talk about it. In the sense that, oh, it's all in one shot. But I don't think that would be the primary thing that people would point out in this film because there's a lot of really interesting stuff to unpack. I agree. And it's executed in a way that if you weren't even aware in advance that it was meant to be perceived as one continuous shot, I don't know that and some people that everyone would even necessarily recognize that. Yeah. The power plays. Yeah, I would agree. Yeah. So I thought that was really cool. And it does really affect the pace of the movie. I wouldn't call it slow pace. I was certainly never bored, but I it does give a certain rhythm. I think the average viewer might call mm. it slow paced, but maybe Michael's a little bit more of a patient viewer. But um, there's definitely, I mean, it's, it's purely dialogue driven pretty much other than what happens in the very beginning of the film and a little bit near the end. Um, and there's some slow dialogue with pauses and things like that, but I think that there's so much emotion in these scenes that I think it, it, it does, it didn't feel slow to me either, but yeah. Yeah, I, I, th I think there is enough, um, I don't know, I guess the, the material really resonates in those stretches of the film where the camera just keeps rolling and nothing's really happening you're just watching one of the characters get dressed or them together in a car maybe not talking for a moment I think those stretches that extra space just lets the material have some room to resonate which I think works nicely yeah and even those moments where you're not watching the characters talking and there actually are, I feel like there is maybe three or four parts of the film where a character is undressing or dressing or going to the bathroom or something. And I feel like even in those moments, there's like, 
there's like I feel like there's things you learn about them or that you can kind of pick up on or um I don't know. Yeah, I would agree. Yeah. I think there is a certain amount of intimacy that comes with just seeing the little ways that people move and carry themselves in moments that otherwise might not matter. It mm -hmm. just grants you a certain degree of connection with those characters when you are still with them as they go into the bathroom by themselves and no one's looking at them. Um, and they're yeah, it does feel very... doing something very minor, just mm -hmm. seeing those tiny little gestures and movements and expressions that somebody has when they're alone or, or doing something seemingly insignificant can actually convey something. Yeah. One thing I feel like if we were at a film festival and the directors were doing a live Q&A, it would be interesting to know why they chose to follow one person versus another in certain scenes because in most of the movie, Rosie and Isla are together, but there are certain points where one person will walk to the bathroom or one person will walk into the bedroom. And um, it just, it'll usually end up just focusing on one person. It won't necessarily go check on the other person, um, mm. which I think we're used to with when there's more cutting. Um, mm -hmm. So yeah, it, it would be, you know, in when they're in the the safe house at the end, um, they choose to follow Isla into the bathroom while Rosie's sitting on the couch with Cat, um, I think. So, mm -hmm. yeah, it was just, uh, I'm, I'm not, I wonder what the decision-making process was in deciding who to, who to follow. Yeah, yeah, that would be interesting to know. Um, oh, I had a thought. And it escaped me. Mm, well, I can fill your your Do time. Um, I something I really enjoyed and appreciated that I saw was mentioned beforehand. That was a very intentional choice. Is that um, they didn't choose to show any of the actual abuse or violence. Um, it cut before any of that happened, and then you see visible bruises and marks on Rosie when you see her again. Um, and it was an intentional choice on the director's part just to... They're, they're very aware of the fact that any violence shown on screen can sometimes just end up being glamorized, even if you're not intending it to. Um, and... Yeah, I liked that they went in that direction and chose to keep that out. Um, and they they also mentioned that their the the main audience that they in, intended to create this film for was um, indigenous women, and so they felt like um, any women who had already experienced abuse, did not need to be necessarily reminded of what that's like. So mm -hmm. um, it's not really a, it's not a necessary part of the story to visually show. Uh, it felt even more important to just see the, the expressions of the characters later. Yeah, and it's kind of funny that you get this for, for a film that, so kind of is, uh, you know, 
reliant on continuity. We get this prologue, and then there's this big gap that contains the inciting incident that we skip over before mm-hmm. having a continuous shot for the rest of the film. Um, I would agree. I do think that feels like the right choice um, because the film's more interested in kind of the the response and impact emotionally and psychologically of the event, not sort of what the event itself looks like or um, feels like in the moment. It's more about the aftermath and how you proceed afterwards and how hard it can be to know what to do um, and how maybe it takes time to figure out what to do afterwards. Um, I think that might have just left too much of a shock and overpowered some of the um, things that follow if, if you had seen it because it clearly was pretty rough. Yeah. And you you end up hearing about it at the end and I feel like even that, like the the verbal story at the end is like more impactful um, in some ways too. I feel like I, I can't remember what movie I'm thinking of right now, but there's definitely some other films where um, victims of abuse or trauma describe what happened to them. And sometimes that just feels, um, I don't know, just more, it's like easier to remember and like, I don't know, it's stick, it stuck in my memory more than of like watching the violence especially because it's just so common to see violence on screen now yeah yeah so in the prologue we see isla's character get an iud that's sort of her main story beat uh within the prologue and then we see her uh sort of reacting to it her getting accustomed to it i guess you could say throughout the movie um what did you make of the choice to even include that as sort of a parallel parallel story beat to this much more um kind of intense one well i feel like i'm cheating because this is also something i've read beforehand but Hmm. there's um I know that it, it's been acknowledged that there's there's kind of an, an interesting dichotomy set up there because um, we have one, um, Isla, who is clearly, I don't, I don't know if I'd necessarily call her wealthy, but she's, she seems comfortable. Um, she's got her own place. It's very neat and um looks i don't know just like more upper class i guess um and she's (laughs) she's clearly able to to afford better health care that can allow her to um even have the option to get certain birth control options like iud's um and then you know it's kind of uh i guess compared in a way to Rosie's character who um, is living with her boyfriend who lives with his mom. Um, definitely a lower income situation and from from what it sounded like 
they, you know, the boyfriend didn't necessarily want the kids. So it sounds like it was probably an unintentional pregnancy, maybe not certain access to resources or birth control options. Um, so I feel like in that way, it was, um, that was an interesting way to kind of set up this story. And, um, it also, I feel like there was some sort of, I don't know, it felt like there was some allusion to, um, Isla having a past history of, I don't know, I mean, <laughs> it's just that her knowledge of the safe house and her anxiety kind of like seeing Rosie's boyfriend screaming at her and all of that hubbub and her coming back and kind of having like a little bit of an anxiety attack when she gets home. It just felt like maybe she has a past history of abuse or um, had a, you know, a friend or family member that may have experienced that. Um, mm. Yeah, I guess I'm going off on a tangent, but um, I also just, you never really see people getting IUDs on, on screen and um, she's got a male doctor and mm -hmm. um just i don't know i feel like it nicely captured the the kind of secret things that women experience that not everyone necessarily sees yeah the scene where she actually gets the iud is where i thought of never rarely sometimes always which is very shortly into the movie and just how different that is shot because I remember it never rarely sometimes always how the camera kind of curls around that young girl as she's getting her abortion and it feels like this really kind of like caress that the camera is offering her like it really respects and is embodying that respect for her and her choice throughout that movie versus here where it, this movie very much does, but it's it was almost like emphasizing how kind of like cold and uncomfortable that situation was. Um, yeah. Uh, I don't know. There's just a different kind of like temperature to that scene. Um, totally. Yeah. Especially with the, you know, the, the kind of cold, unempathetic questions asked beforehand. These very, very personal questions about her health history and how often you know, who she has sex with and like, um, whether, you know, she has to, she has to mention that she's had an abortion eight years ago and, um, yeah. 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 He's not cruel about it, but it is also not just very, there's, there's a lack of, of fact. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I was just trying to remember what I was about to say. I think the ambiguity about, Isla was kind of interesting and what exactly she thought about perhaps becoming a mother herself. She seems very interested in Violet's pregnancy. She shows an interest in, you know, uh, feeling the, the baby. Ba feeling the baby. Yeah, exactly. She also is visibly upset towards the end when Violet says, you'll make a great mom. She clearly doesn't want to have a baby right now. Yeah. I don't think um, there is a, uh, 
a, a whole lot of clarity about what exactly her attitude towards becoming a mother herself is, but I think I think I think I enjoy that ambiguity myself. Um, did you get any sense of what you think she wants or doesn't want? Um, or was it just not something that came to mind? No, I mean I definitely. Th- thought about it but I feel like my thought process was the same as yours and I don't know if I've I really have much more of an an answer than kind of those observations that um I don't know those little moments where she has had an abortion she's I think 31 and she's getting an IUD her boyfriend wants a baby but she doesn't right now um, so yeah, it's kind of unclear, but, you know, but yeah, definitely very caring for Violet, and I thought that that was, um, just kind of inspiring and sweet to watch, uh, these strangers become friends over the course of a day and um i think i've there's it almost kind of i talked about demystifying a little bit earlier but it's like i feel like it helped to show in some sense people how to like how to help others if they're going through some sort of traumatic event like this and, um, you know, what you can do to help and what you can say. And, and also kind of on the other end, the options that people have if they're in an unsafe situation. And um, at the end of the movie, there was a little text um, blurb that said, for her and others like her. And, you know, I think this movie was very focused on people who are experiencing abuse and hoping that they can find refuge and safety. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, going back to the fact that it's essentially one continuous shot, I think the the compassion that Isla is showing towards Violet and how that is really evident in the form, you know, in the, in the sense that she's, she was going about her day and then suddenly dropped whatever it was she was gonna do for the rest of the day and devotes the next, you know, two hours, minute after minute, to this other person just completely drops whatever else was was on her mind which might have been a lot and it's it still is to some extent we see her you know um having moments of reflection when the camera follows her but yeah for a movie that on the surface sounds like it might just be a rough watch it's really just the act of compassion and the um length of it that is quite moving yeah, I would agree. Do you have thoughts about uh, these performances at all? Or um, 
any other formal aspects from cinematography or any of those musical moments? Um, yeah, I was thinking about the musical moments and how there's, it's, there's pretty much no music other than this one Joni Mitchell song, a little bit of a hummed acapella song near the end of the movie, and then that, that same song that was sung acapella plays um, at the end. And I feel like the, the lack of sound and music in the background was really nice and making those moments of music feel a lot more impactful and um, really showing how, I mean, I guess in the moment, it's hard to tell exactly what Rosie's feeling in the moment when she's listening to this Joni Mitchell song, especially now that I know that it's about um, Joni at 19 <laughs> having to give up her child. But it felt, I mean, she she mentions that her it's something that her grandmother would listen to. So I was feeling more like it was a moment of comfort mm. and um and i guess it, it was i don't know it was like this uh, a, a little it was interesting that it was joni mitchell in some ways because she just seems like um <laughs> i don't know so like western and mm. uh and it's just it's but she, yeah, I don't know. She's also just got this such a unique style of singing that um, mm -hmm. can be comforting for all. Yeah, good song. It is. <laughs> I haven't listened to Joni Mitchell in a long time, but I like it. Yeah. Yeah, it does. Uh, yeah, have a very realistic feel to it. I think the 16 millimeter photography has a lot to do with that. That doesn't feel glossy. It feels very kind of gritty and lived in yeah, real world situation kind of feel yeah and yeah it's a good looking film yeah i was i'm always impressed too and you know it's clear that there there's even there's one scene especially when it's like you can you can even tell that the person holding the camera is when they're getting in the taxi they have to kind of like shift and stare down at the, the ground of the, the car and then kind of like sit in the seat behind it and mm. get situated. And I feel like that was like the one moment where you could, it was like, okay, there's a camera person there. Um, but for some reason I was like, it still worked. I don't know. Um, I, it just felt, um, I liked how raw all of that felt. And um, I like the, I don't know that the shot, even even static shots, still had like a little bit of a a shake to them. That it wasn't distracting, but it was. It just felt natural. Mm -hmm. Um. So yeah, I I really liked I liked the the visuals a lot, and I I mean I can't imagine doing these continuous shots and not being able to really control the light at all. I don't know how they accomplish that, especially with mm. a film camera. Like they must have had to, when they go into these 
different darker settings or brighter settings like in the car like they must have had to pass to a different camera to change the settings in there or like a different a camera with different settings or something but well, yeah uh, I think it's a very complicated process <laughs> I, I think I read that one of the crew members was always sort of a scene or two ahead of them checking the light with mm. with the light meter or whatever um making sure that they knew what they might need to tell the cinematographer or signal to the cinematographer yeah if need be which is interesting i i was just i was also amazed how good the actresses were just staying in character throughout these continuous shots and um i thought that the conversations felt natural and nicely kind of awkward and i think there were i i kind of had trouble pinning down rosie's character a little bit because she seems so i don't know if i would even necessarily i think in the beginning she seems shy but i would don't think i would describe her as shy at the end it's just more like um introverted i guess and like not not really feeling like she doesn't she doesn't want to talk if she doesn't have to talk um and also has kind of like a i don't know she can have kind of a bitter attitude sometimes um yeah i maybe struggled with that a little bit as well there's like a really steady and consistent kind of level of intensity of the conversations it's very consistently kind of quiet and understated and calm and just like you said there are these kind of different shades of her personality revealed by what she's saying which can be sort of reserved and withdrawn or sort of sort of she can kind of snap she can kind of bite back a little bit and i'm not sure sometimes that was i felt myself thinking shouldn't this be shouldn't there be a little bit more range to like the the temperature of the conversation given what you're saying or something um I will, so yeah I will say there were some things maybe didn't feel totally organic to me or something like that but yeah mm -hmm. I, I don't know I mean maybe there are people with personalities like that out there um I I was definitely I think I was the most shocked when she started making up this story about her and Isla in the car um at the, you know them being sisters and Isla's an alcoholic and this whole story about how their parents met um and she's suddenly very chatty and like having this back and forth conversation with the driver and kind of like smirking at Isla um that felt strange to me. I, I, you know, it does seem like she kind of, I don't know, maybe it was just enjoying the idea of her not being the one in, in trouble and imagining that she was being the helpful one and kind of getting to play that role. Um, yeah. yeah, it's funny how that kind of functions at first as almost some comic relief, but then it very naturally kind of segues back into 
uh, a heavier kind of tone. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I, uh, I felt like it, <laughs> the film subverted a lot of cliches. I, I feel like I kept expecting Rosie to kind of like soften up and like, you know, quote unquote, do the right thing. Like, you know, give the wallet back or like admit that she did that or stay at the safe house um, around all these people that were being a support system for her. But I feel like they, especially with, you know, with the research that they had done in advance, I feel like they probably told the more realistic story. Um, but it was still hopeful in a way um, to have the woman, um, one of the women in the safe house say that, you know, a lot of women do come back. It just takes, sometimes it takes seven or eight tries. Yeah. Yeah. And those little details like her stealing the wallet or stealing some medicine out of, um, Isla's medicine cabinet just, you know, kind of further reveal something about the background of the character that maybe that is how she's making money. And that seems to be the case since she ended up selling some drugs yeah. yeah um so yeah those those stretches where it seems like nothing happened actually kind of contain these little details that are revelatory in some way yeah because you're not quite sure why she's taking them in the first place yeah yeah well okay i think another thing that i appreciated was that although the story features two indigenous women it still ends up being a very, you know, a topic that can be very relatable for almost any culture. The, you know, the um, struggle with domestic abuse. Mm -hmm. And um, I don't know. I liked that that uh, was the case, I guess. <laughs> yeah, I would agree. The fact that they're indigenous is almost kind of incidental. You could take away that aspect that aspect of the movie in it and the narrative wouldn't change that much but that detail is meaningful um, yeah because you don't meaning. see it enough period yeah um, and i think th i think that it is interesting in the film and that rosie um even though they both are indigenous women and Rosie is aware of Isla's background um she still seems to have a bias against her and calls her white a couple times and seems to have a lot of bitterness about that um and I know that there's kind of like a similar racism and frustration um sometimes within the black community as well, like of like light skinned versus dark skinned um, black people. So I, it was kind of like a interesting dynamic to bring up, I guess, that it was like this, uh, it was bo both indigenous women, but one was lighter skinned and wealthier. And then the other girl, like, you know, she was darker skinned and lower income and definitely um, yeah, had this bias. Yeah, yeah, that 
Uh, yeah, I would completely agree. Yeah. Um, but I don't think I have too much else. I'm very interested to possibly watch some other of Maya Tillfeather's films. Um, I don't know if she directed this, but it sounded like, I mean, she's, she's an actress as well as a director. So have you watched or seen or heard of Blood Quantum? Like a no, it's not. a horror film. It's like an indigenous mm. indie horror film. So, mm. um, yeah, interested to to see that. And um, I did see that Violet was there's a film or short film. It's like a ten minute film that came out this year that she was in. I'm not sure how big of a role she plays in it but she's in there with the kid that plays mike from stranger things who's the main character um oh. kind of random and mm. yeah interesting cool yes well i think that's a wrap on our inaugural episode yeah thanks for listening we will be back next week with another film until next time.